Hello and welcome back to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we talk to neurodivergent guests about things that they could talk for Ireland about. Your hosts, I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have on Ross. Ross, hello. Hello. How are you doing? doing? I'm doing good. Tired, but very much excited just to finish college, so very happy to be on otherwise, and thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for being on. (coughs) So what are you here... What are you here to talk to us about today? Uh, good question. So, what I think the main thing that I talk about is sort of my hyperfixation on sort of bike cycling and city planning. That's the main issue because I just generally have a lot of interest. I sort of cycle every day, and I got really interested to very much starting small and very much starting with video games initially, and then it sort of spiraled on there to real life application. Joining sort of the advocacy groups for cycling and commuting and just having an overall keen interest in just being a lot critical towards cityscapes and local areas especially and that sort of snowballed into my sort of passion and that. Hmm, okay. And is there any particular reason why you, uh, you chose that for today's episode other than, you know, getting really really into uh cycling and city planning and and such so the main reason why i got involved in that is because i think people can take a really intriguing look and sort of critical look at their own areas i think especially when you look at areas such as college green and the city center for example i think it could be really good to see what can be made improved but also how we can suit the people and people that live around the city center so it's by looking at that you can sort of take a more critical eye more sustainable as well to more walking and cycling but also to the cityscapes and that's the sort of big books that I look to because you want to make sure you have a lively area not just pure plain walls and boring graffiti but you want to actually have an area that's livable and that's sort of why yeah. my passion is about all that mixing mm-hmm. together and creating a diverse area really. So just on that I wanted to ask because you're talking about uh, College Green in the city centre then so the the increase in building hotels in Dublin is sort of anathema to your interest in city planning then where every every second building is now going to be a hotel or business park yeah that's a major issue actually and that's sort of the biggest thing is that's a big a good thing you want in a is a, in a city is a multiple ways of living there so you want to have people who are living there people who are in some hotels obviously but you want to have lots of shops you want to make sure they're big and small shops. You want to have sort of this local farmer's market as close to any sort of big chain or fast food chain. And obviously when you have lots of hotels, you're only going to have one specific type of people there. But obviously as the pandemic has shown, when you don't have the people coming there, it goes really quiet really quickly. And I think that's the biggest reason why when you see Grafton Street, I think especially last year in March, how shocked people were see absolutely nobody in because all the tourists who would usually go to the hotels aren't there anymore and simply yeah. it shows how quickly that can change from an area that's busted to an area that just is devoid of anything and how more recently and the bigger thing recently is to get people back into the cities because everybody lives in the suburbs now and this is actually a major sticking point is that we all loads of us live in the suburbs and that's actually a bad thing because we should be all living in the cities but there's nowhere to live in the cities is the biggest issue because instead we have all these hotels and unaffordable rents. 
It's a bit of a catch-22 then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like, the biggest thing with that is that it's basically just how decades of planning have gone into sort of how this has happened, and we're trying to all reverse it in like three or four years. It's just not possible, really. And that's some of the solutions that we're providing that are saying build higher when we're not even living in the vacant spaces that are already there in low density, so it provides that sort of debate too, but it's also a case of also that I also would disagree in some way that high density is the answer. I think medium density of like five to six stories is the best, and there's actually a lot of studies to back that up too. I think a book I read and sort of one of the main with actual proper readings rather than just playing City Skylines was actually reading the book Cities for People by Jan Hell and that mm-hmm. actually provides really interesting comparisons of how cities should be so cities should basically be active, they should be friendly and a mixture of stuff as well, it should be very much visible and have lots of windows, lots of units of sort of stores and basically just look like you actually want to come into the city and have a sort of way of reason to stay there because I think the biggest thing is that if you go sort of literally to any sort of housing estate in the suburbs you're going to have lots of just housing blocks and cul-de-sacs and that just doesn't make want to make you live there at all because otherwise you're going to be facing another house and walls otherwise and that's the biggest issue with the cities too. You mentioned that um, medium density you think is the like like the best, um, like the ideal, like could you like maybe go a bit more into that or? Yep, certainly. So medium density actually provides a lot of benefits in that. Firstly, it provides a lot of people to be all in the same area, but not be overly crowded either. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's big issues with co-living and that's something that definitely shouldn't be happening. And obviously yeah. you want to make sure that where you live is also good too. But obviously but if you have a large amount of people living in a small area, but not too cramped, you also have great benefits. So firstly, the biggest one is that obviously you start a lot of people in a small area rather than you need a big suburb. But however, if you have people living, for example, at windows and near the ground level, you actually have what is very interesting is passive surveillance. And that passive surveillance actually allows an area to become much safer and much more lively because if you're passing sort of like, let's say, a five-story housing block, you could have people who are out the windows, you could hear babies crying, but you also have people hanging up clothes and very much is actually something happening there, but also at night, if you hear a screaming, if you hear someone screaming outside, obviously you're going to have a lot of people suddenly gaining their attention, and because it's such a tight-knit community, everybody's got to go out, and that actually creates a lot more safety in that as well, which is a really interesting phenomenon. And also further to that as well, is sort of the biggest thing as well with that is services, and if you can provide services that don't need to take too far along to get to, but also have enough capacity, importantly, then that provides a nice balance without being too cramped. And another thing, actually, which comes to mind as well, is actually the environmental impact of some of these houses. So a lot of people, and a bigger issue of mine is that if you build higher, you're going to have more houses. But at the same time, that's not always the case. With five or six stories, you've got to get maximum capacity of that. But if you build taller, you're going to have to have some vacant spots for offices, usually. And that's a bigger issue too. But also, another one is that, especially if you go into the city on windy days, you realise how much wind there is. And especially if you go to the dock, because of how high it is, it's incredibly windy. And that's because of how the wind is actually channeled between the buildings, because it can't get through the higher buildings, so it has to go around and usually under to where the poor people are. So 
that's why if you go around there, it's absolutely freezing, and that doesn't invite anyone in, so you usually want to get out as soon as you can, too. Absolutely. I'm thinking of the um, so there was pictures uh, recently on online of the um, apartment blocks that were built in the wake of World War II in Soviet bloc countries, and they're just absolutely massive, imposing structures um, that are like dozens of floors high, and they're you know, like all two or three room apartments so like I can only imagine how windy and how bad it would get up at the very top of there yeah absolutely and uh, actually there's a bigger issue with that is us with sort of those kind of houses that always going to be the same built because obviously it's the cheapest way to do it and that's actually a big criticism that I would have that although they might be nice and um, there's always this thing of Soviet architecture being nice they're only the they're outliers really in terms of the overall build it at the cheapest price obviously because of the social system at the time so to sort of combat mm. that I think it is also important that where you live should also look attractive outside as well so there should also be a lot of ensuring that there's glass visualization and sort of getting sunlight as well and also making sure there's also a lot of sort of greenery around because obviously trees bushes plants they might not seem big deals but when you don't have them, you realise how much of importance they are and obviously the benefits of having lots of greenery, especially near you, provides a lot of benefits there, as well as also drainage as well, and that provides a big issue as well, mm. the drainage to actually ensure you don't get floods and you don't realise your apartment on the ground floor, or if in a lot of apartments there's some, sometimes underground parking, doesn't get flooded and that's a big issue too in some of them. Would you say aesthetic appeal is also a large aspect? of city planning and like urban development and would you say then that it's like like where would you rank it in terms of importance then on just like an aesthetic level i think it's important i don't think it's as, as important as functionality because i think simply it needs to work before you can make it look pretty i think that's a lot yeah. of things but i think example i would sort of push is sort of i think let's use college green that's a nice easy one because obviously everyone knows where that is the issue with that is that the first step to previously go to it, it used to be, it's like a tree lane, one way, if you're on a bike, good luck basically, but now <laughs> you start to see small steps, so first of all you start to see planters being put, and even something as simple as planters rather than ones provides more trees. Now the next thing you want to do is notice how many poles there are, because I think there's a lot of pictures where you can see how many safety things are saying. Here's a bus lane, here's a cycle lane, here's a tall taxis, but there's so many poles indicating it and signs that if you wanted to take a picture of Trinity College from Dame Street, you wouldn't see anything because of how crowded it is with just this brutalist pole architecture. And it's not even a good art piece either, so that's one of the major things. <laughs> brutalist then, pole architecture. <laughs> I like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, you have to make it whatever aesthetic you can from it really because it looks it's unnecessary as hell of course. Yeah. And then another thing as well is also making sure you have public buy-in and then I think that's the biggest important thing that one of the biggest plans is also to pedestrianise College Green and the photo I have which is actually my background choice on my screensaver in fact is what is known as option four of the College Green pedestrianisation which is which is going to completely pedestrianise Dave Street in that area up to, I'm not sure, Angel Street in that area, I'm not sure what the full street name is all the way, but I think 
I think that's the first case far is what I put it as. Um, what the image shows is basically literally people cycling, a man playing a saxophone, people eating outside with a umbrella to cover them in a dry weather, and it looks so attractive, and that's why people really saw us and thought, I want to live in a city that looks like that, and it looks amazing in that way, and I think as an art piece, even just subjectively, it looks very good, but when you have 95% of people saying, we want this over what it is currently a massive bus route and sort of car route, I think that shows you how if you get people supporting it and telling them why they should believe in it as well as the aesthetics and the functionality, I think that's important too. Yeah, and then that ties back into the cycle of taking out all of the important cultural spots to build excessively functional and executive buildings. Like, I'm thinking yeah. of the, the lemon that used to be on uh, Dawson Street that's now just a pit in the ground beside Hodges Vegas. That was uh, just a bit devastating to see go because it was right outside of college, and now I can't like I have to walk if I want pancakes. Devastating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I say also a bigger thing is that as well as that is that you want to actually keep as much of protective monuments, and that's actually a big thing too because obviously another big issue is actually re- removing or sort of rebuilding monuments to fit the modern aesthetic. But the margin said it was just bland as hell and just absolutely no justice to anything in protected buildings. It's actually related to that a local development happening just down the canal for me. And they're trying to convert the old school house to a building, but it looks absolutely nothing like the same when it's overshadowed by these eight story or nine story even in some cases apartments and it doesn't show any sort of value to it at all. And I think that too, I think you need to keep some of the statues. Whoever, even if maybe then in some cases, to some people's disapproval, but I think it hmm. also needs to be going against the grain in some cases because, like, you look at David Street, but also you look at uh, Grafton Street, and up to 1982, that wasn't even a pedestrian street, that was very much a true way street with a one year oh. trial, and it was only a one year trial at the time, it wasn't, and people didn't actually like it as much in how it was a trial until initially people actually experienced it and then went, oh, this is actually quite nice, let's keep it. And then, as you say, the rest is history and then now it's one of our most famous streets in probably Ireland in that way. And it's yeah. a best, especially ironic where you see how people at the time would actually disagree with something that's now you sort of look back and see, why did they disagree, why did they disagree with it then? It looks brilliant now, but obviously but hindsight yeah. is nice, but yeah. it's it sort of... The best way to trial things is by doing it and then let's see and then changing it to how people react. There's a lot of issues with public consultations and not doing it as you look in a certain uh where is it again? Uh as a certain strand road cycle trial in South Dublin. I think I think like that's the, the more positive aspect to things like the uh the tram system that was built through Dublin by the British that we spent loads of money <laughs> taking out of Dublin in the like 80s and 90s or whatever and then only for tracks to be laid and more money to be spent putting in lines for the Lewis and Dart later on then so like you have to wonder then why were people against that and was it just British things but just like in terms of city infrastructure that was a <laughs> that was a strange move and then 
it's actually it's actually ironic how much we we always we can't we can very critical about the British, but when it comes to actually cities, they didn't do a bad job in fairness. And I think we actually did a lot of the damage when it comes to some building. I think a, a big example is that as well as also going down to Kildare Street and the Department of Agriculture. That build, there's a building there which absolutely looks very Victorian and absolutely looks marvelous. Tear it down and replace with the, you know, the brutalist building there, right beside government buildings, which looks absolutely awful where the Department of Agriculture is. And you sort of look at that in the sort of, how do we do that again, sort of. But we are repeating our own mistakes in some ways, and it's the biggest issue with that, that we just keep saying, oh no, we don't need to protect this monument, it has no value, and then a few days away, oh, it actually does did have value, but it's a bit late, we can't really bring it back, it's sort of like the Lewis. <laughs> we sort of look at, pub- we look at public infrastructure as if it's a case of costs, uh, economically, rather than any sort of social benefit may have an, an issue too, that we sort of tear it out and we're like, and then suddenly a few years later, we're like, oh yeah, we actually need it again, but oh no, we have to actually, it costs even more to put it back in again. Hmm. And that's a big issue too. Okay, but you're I focused want, like, on whether we can do something. Yeah. yeah, when we can, because because the, you don't get headlines by tearing something apart. You get headlines by building something new, even if it's replacing something that was already there in the first place. Mm. You mentioned about public monuments, and then coming back years later and going, oh, maybe there was some some good to it. I want to I want to posit a question to you and see what your thoughts are on it. The spire. <laughs> thoughts. Uh, many, but <laughs> I like should spire, we tear it down? I'd say a lot of, you say you look at a lot of modern things, we sort of, you get very critical about them. You sort of say, oh, look, it looks like an absolutely horrible thing in the sky, but it's like, you really, it's very much, uh, it's very much a new pool bag, it's the pool bag chimneys, basically. It's very much like that. We seem to build a long stick in the sky, hate it initially, yeah. and we're like, then we like it suddenly. Although with the pool bag, it seems to be the opposite. We seem to be very divided about it now, but I think, it shows how quickly we can sort of like stuff, I think. It also brings a comparison to the Eiffel Tower, where it was built up for the World Fair in the, 18, the 1880s, 1890s, I think it was, and was only meant to be there for the World Fair, and a lot of French people hated this. And then it wasn't until it was kept, and now it's become a national monument and a symbol of France, literally, where if you sort of search France, one of the first results we get is the Eiffel Tower, but it was hated by everybody else beforehand, so it really goes <laughs> to show that we people aren't the best indicators of how successful a thing will do in public perception, so a bit of patience <laughs> is required too, but monuments, especially like the Spire, I think the Spire has a special place in my heart, really. It's sort of, it is sort of the de facto centre of town, when you sort of talk to anybody who's very lost in Dublin and just say meet me at the spire you can't really miss it because it's just a big stick in the sky and it's like it's like one of those real life Google Earth points you sort of land it in the ground but it actually exists in real life and that would be very handy indeed but at the same time that would be the case to do that but yeah, it has and a the space thing is, and like, it, I, the, there's not much taller than the spire in the city centre at least like until you go out onto the keys so it's not like it can be lost no, definitely. And I think I don't think there's much taller than the spire anywhere in Ireland, actually, for that matter. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So I think it's. they're building. Apparently, they're building a skyscraper in Cork, though. That'll be the tallest building in Ireland. I know, but it's typical Cork having to steal the title, but I think Dublin will get it back someday. That's that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. 
I say it's sort of it's sort of I'm not sure what the big obsession with racing high is though with sort of all the mental background before I think if you have one or two teams high I think it's fair but I don't but I think you realise how quickly they don't fit in and if you look at cities like London you see the skyscraper you're like, Oh that looks really good but then you have some ridiculous buildings that are listening to Walkie Talkie. Oh literally burn cars to the ground because they didn't think about how much sunlight would affect office. And actually, burn cars just casually parked there. So, I think Jesus. it looks it looks lovely to build skyscrapers, but at the same time, they don't really have much practical value. And that's the biggest thing with cities: the cities should be small but dense, and not that's overly never not funny to me. That like oh, just an... the whole the whole concept of the walkie-talkie is so funny because like it's just a whacking great big skyscraper, and you like focuses sun rays into like a death ray that melts cars and everyone was like hey that's a bit like a bit fucking much after it was uh done and then the guy went to like america and built another building with the exact same problem <laughs> you just try do it again yeah yeah the sun the sun angle will be slightly different so it won't make a difference as much head empty no <laughs> thoughts <laughs> <laughs> no thoughts, just vibes. <coughs> a lot of people have said that um, Dublin is kind of really becoming more of a tourist city than a city for like people to live in. Like, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, because I think firstly you can't live in Dublin city. That's the issue with that, and everyone lives in the suburbs. Secondly, mm-hmm. you realise how quickly there's lack of any specificities for locals. For example. You go to the park, and actually, if you're outside, if you're outside of your house, if you're outside of your house, you go to Dublin City Council. There are only like four toilets in the entirety of Dublin City to sort of go to, which aren't private or owned by a shop. So, if you don't, if you don't want to spend, if you don't have any money on you, you're sort of screwed in that way. And I think that's mm. the first issue. And then, secondly, a bigger issue, which I'm probably one I want to go more into, is actually stuff like playgrounds and. Simple things like that is that there are very little places that actually sit down and have a place because there's so many people going to the same spots as tourism. There isn't really many places you can go off the beaten path, and especially in cities, it's harder to do that. And obviously, if you're traveling in the city, you're only traveling in not to actually enjoy it and live there, but only because you're going in for work and then you're traveling back out to the suburbs. And that's probably the biggest issue with sort of Irish life at the moment. That we have become so suburban dependent. It's almost reminiscent of America in that way that we always get the car, go on the M50 and go to wherever we need to go. And I think there are some comparisons to 43 May between America and Dublin that way and other cities as well, actually, for that matter, especially when you look at going the proposed ring road and roads in Cork as well, for that matter. How much car dependency is massive and also how unfriendly it is to be walking a cycling class. If you're trying to walk anywhere, you have to sort of walk on traffic islands. If you have a cycle lane, well, good luck. You have no cycle lane at all. You have a bit of paint maybe on the side, but that might go in like five minutes and you might have potholes anyway to deal with. So it's actually making sure that even simple things, just making sure the paths are wide enough and having a cycle lane is something that's very important to making sure you can actually live in the city and travel there easily without having to worry about anything else, let alone the cost of actually having to go there as well, and obviously if you're driving in your car, you're always going to be stuck in traffic, just want to get to your office, just want to get home, and you actually never get to experience the city 
except on like festival days where it's the one day where actually you close the traffic traffic to cars and then suddenly out of nowhere people actually come on the street which really shows you who the enemy and what my sort of perceived enemy is is actually the modem of <laughs> in that bit grim then yeah it's a bit grim but i think that's sort of what happens when you sort of fall for this uh sort of this liberty of american liberty of saying if you have a car you can go anywhere without any problems and anytime you go to the city it's always about how many car parking spaces there are in each car park and what's the traffic like to get to this place or that place but if you're on a bike you don't care about that you know how long your commute is going to take because you don't get stuck in traffic cars out of traffic but however you do worry about getting your bike stolen and not having any traffic however you do get any worries about not having a bike lane to go on bike lane properly being blocked by a car for example or planned parking only temporarily for the past hour and it's those issues that are the biggest issues really that it's a small inconveniences that just build up to make it like something larger and that's what it makes it unfriendly to anybody else and that's sort of why I'm sort of a big advocate for walking cycling because it's actually what people do people don't really go in their cars to sort of actually experience or go to local shops and that's what walk people who walk and cycle do they can just walk into a shop or cycle in some places just literally just leave their bike outside unlocked and have absolutely no concerns if we had that kind of society that would be brilliant in that way and that's very much why i sort of look at other countries such as the netherlands is probably the biggest example obviously but denmark as countries where we're like that looks nice and it's very much how differently it works there, that shops there, you know in Ireland we have a big grocery shop and we have big weekly shops, how many vouchers go towards that, but at the same time, yeah. in some countries such as Netherlands, it's only like a quick shop, you basically go almost daily, because you only need to get the stuff that you need to get, and that will actually get you to spend more because of that as well, and also make sure you're spending more shops of spaces, so you actually spend more in local shops, rather than having to do one big shop in one big store, well, smaller shops struggle, and that's also a big issue too. So you, you make like, you've made a lot of good points about what the things are that's wrong with current like urban planning and in terms of what's lacking for pedestrians and cyclists. And I know this is probably like a big question, trademark, to uh, land on you in just like in a podcast, but like, you know, like pitch us some sort of like easy steps that we could all go about to like improve like obviously because we're not in government but like what would you say <laughs> are uh, <laughs> i feel like if we were in government we'd get a whole lot of shit done so much let quicker. us in the doll let us yeah. in the doll <laughs> um, but yeah what do you think is like you know some simple and easy steps that would reduce this crisis of modernity uh let's say it's a multifaceted approach that we need to. I think the first one that anyone could do is make sure to engage more with the local politicians and to make sure that they actually support things that might not be politically, that might not be politically sort of strong to do, might be politically hard to do. And even if people are against you, you still should follow it anyway. Especially when it comes to issues of sort of cycle lanes and stuff like that, you can have a lot of people saying, oh no, but what about the ambulances that will get through suddenly? Despite the fact that we actually won't be affected by it, and what about the, the inconvenience that it will have for me, a motorist, despite the fact 
as a cyclist, you almost get hit by cars almost every day in some case. And it's having to actually tell your politician, no, I actually want this to happen, specifically because I'm affected by this issue and because I want to see a better local area. And I think you have to start local. I think that's where lockdown has actually brought, I, well, mentioned the word lockdown, unfortunately, but the five kilometers <laughs> actually shows you how local your area is. Despite the fact that I mean, you may feel sort of isolated in that, you also have to, you also realize how much you pass a lot more and how, especially for me, you become a lot more, well, why don't we change this bit? I think, I remember I emailed councillors specifically on things such as kissing gates, which are an issue where they're an accessibility issue, for example, and you can get them removed, for example, as well as sort of the signals and lights where if you feel like you don't have enough time to cross a light, as a pedestrian, then you might say, hey, can we have more time in the lights? And I think those are simple ways. Obviously, with infrastructure, that's the bigger thing, but I think more often than not, especially recently, there's been a load of consultations, public consultations, where people can engage in what they want the area to be, for example, whether it be roads or whole schemes, such as bus connects. And I think that provides a great way of directly influencing local democracy in that, to actually say, I want this, I want that, I want the other. It might not all come to fruition, but at least it, you actually are counted as one of the people who've made their voice heard rather than someone who complains about it but doesn't actually say anything to us directly. Because you're always going to have a lot more people who are angry and actually are against it and say it, put their submission in, rather than people who support it and softly support it, but they actually don't put a submission in. If you're one of the people who puts a submission in, you're already making a great stand against that. Hmm. Basically, in, get the, get involved in democracy. It's more, it's more than just votes, and that's sort of what I would leave people with. That's <laughs> fair. Can that be the slogan for the new government? Democracy. It's more than just votes. I mean, it should be for any democracy. I mean, it should be a case of not just looking purely at sort of how people vote in some ways, but also what their beliefs are. And I think it's the case of, especially recently, I think it's showing you how votes have a power to sort of be politically motivated and sort of how especially when it comes to bills well even sort of local issues for example is a case of how party lines can be split the, the divide around it when it might be an issue that isn't as contentious as it really as it really is shown I think that's the biggest issue too especially with city planning you're going to have a lot of people against it but I think in some ways actually surprisingly in a good way is that of all issues, such as things as pedestrianisation and bike things aren't as politically divisive as you can because you're going to have very few people who are going to say, I oppose a bike lane and that, and then you have a lot of public support. And I think that's the issue is that you don't have a lot of public support, but you also have some uninformed support at the same time. And I think you need to come to that. And that's one of the biggest issues I have is that there's a lot of misinformation with that. And there's a lot of, like the biggest issues and always you want to hear is that it's going to create an impact to emergency services. It's not going to have any cyclists on there, which is apparently an island made too. It's not going to look mm-hmm. great. It's going to be inconvenient to motorists, and despite the fact it's actually meant to be inconvenient for motorists. And also <laughs> another one, it doesn't actually follow to any standards, despite the fact there's the Design Manual Roads and Urban Systems and the National Cycle Manual, although I have issues with that too because it needs it's outdated as hell. But it's sort of there are evidence bases back to back it up, but you just need to be heard over sort of the echo chamber. 
Yeah, for sure. And and then when you uh, compare that to when you compare that to like you were talking about people coming out and votes. Um, the like when when you compare the the numbers in like the electorate and how many people actually come out and vote, especially across different age demographics, like who's voting for what? Because if you put all of these things to a referendum, you know they're probably yeah. they probably won't get as much engagement if it is just votes instead of like going out and doing more public engagement. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's another point to this. Touching there actually is that first of all, when you actually think about it, if you actually get involved with your local politician, you're only a percentage of the percentage of people who probably voted to actually are emailing them, so you have a good chance to actually get on contact with them and represent their views. Another thing I have an issue with is petitions and how easy it is to sign petitions. Some of the petitions can be good, but some of them can be not so good. However, sort of the biggest issue that I, and sort of the biggest gain that you can have as well is making sure young people of all ages are also involved in sort of how the area should be because I think because I think the biggest issue the biggest thing you want to have is that you want to have a city that is catering for ages 8 to 80 and that's sort of the biggest thing that you can do so how do you cater for those sort of 8 to 17 or 18 in this case because obviously they can't vote so I think you actually also need to accommodate for those younger and make it you do need to simplify it a bit, obviously, but at the same time, you actually do need to reach it out because they will have the most ideas and also provide an outlet for those ideas. So, for example, a lot of conversations now have a way, have a U-Hub where people can sort of say what they want their area to look like and also draw, do drawings as well. And you can have very much cute images of kids' drawings about what they want their area to be like and actually use as legitimate inputs. And that's a brilliant way to show how it actually includes everybody, and especially younger people, in what they want their area to be, and obviously will that increase more engagement later years, because obviously mm. Molinoid are for Chucky She, crazy use, and they will flourish, and I think that's what needs to be done in this context too. Yeah, but also it, it would also like finally give a good reason for why people still do CSB. So for those who don't know, CSB is Civic, Social, and Political Education. It's the subject that most um, secondary school students in Ireland will do until 15 and then they won't yeah. ever do it again but now now recently like my sister did her junior cert last year and uh, like it they took out the exam for it so it was still taught but it wasn't examined so they made it like completely redundant so whereas if you engaged with the youth in terms of like what they want their community to be with this part of their education wouldn't be going to waste and it would be a good way to contextualize the problems of like engaging with uh like local like local civil unions and things like that yeah and sort of i think a bigger issue and either with csb or generally that you focus on the macro issues rather than the micro issues and i think trying to say soft climate change is going to be a bit too hard but if you try to do something small such as anything that I mentioned before like paths to cycle lanes or whatever you like to call it or even just saying something about it, keeping a protected building or a statue of Lenin then that will actually provide a lot more of a success in that it might not be overall success but we actually can track it a lot more than trying to say protect the environment by a few posters and somehow thinking that will do all the work my work here is done here's your grade i think that's some of the issue too that 
you do need to challenge yourself in that way to sort of work out how am I doing, am I getting the issues that I care about passion in this sort of context and not trying to be overly ambitious but also trying to make sure you know how much worse you can do, you can actually change the issues and also trying to get a movement as well. If you get people to agree with your issue and multiple people write to the same person about saying they want this change but obviously not using our copy paste email as well then that seems that's more legitimate and you'll actually get some responses then and also having influence as well of saying I am a voter I will be watching because then they get absolutely scared and then that actually provides a lot more change that way too but I'm watching <coughs> I'm trying to think so, Oh, yeah, yeah tell, tell, me, tell me about that. Tell us about that. Sort of, how sort of Umbadesh encyclopedia really is, but actually, you sort of, when you sort of realise how much the roads are actually how toxic they are, I think the biggest thing is, especially when you want to cross the road, is traffic islands, where you know you have to stand in the middle of sort of two cars that flows of traffic and you're sort of like, help, kind of way, because you can't make it all the way through. But, oh, or, or the fact you have to make multiple crossings just to get to the other yeah, side. Stranded yeah, stranded there almost. If you're in any mm. sort of motor vehicle, you'll be fine and no problem. But I think it's really intriguing to see how alternatives there are. So, for example, you look at sort of the Netherlands, for example. Again, I've got to keep going to that. It's a good place to ask. Is how many crossings there are. But I think there's a really interesting way of how yeah. the crossings are done. So, for example, you know the way when you're crossing the street, you usually have to, like, a, like even just a residential street, you have to go down to the road and then go back up to the pedestrian. Well, in other, well, in sort of the other examples, is that actually the cars have to go up to where the pedestrians are, and that actually brings a lot more of an authority to actually people crossing in the right way. It's sort of like the equivalent of a zebra crossing, but as standard and without sort of the lights that you have at times. But it's very much just this idea of invisible infrastructure or infrastructure that you don't notice until you don't have and that's sort of the biggest thing as well that when you sort of have a ramp that you can have right away you sort of take that without having to do a run across the street just to make sure you don't get hit by the side and that's very much a simple way of being able to go there I think it's very similar to also like an yeah. idea of super blocks is that you can't actually drive through the, through an area but you can if you have any other if you were sort of walking cycling absolutely no problem go straight through and it actually say it can actually save time too, and obviously, Great Roman is a recent example of where, in, where they changed the role to allow this thing called filter permeability. Sort of, if you are in a car, it can only be for local access, and if you're traveling through directly just to make the A to B journey to somewhere else, you can't go through at all. And what I saw was how traffic went down significantly, and didn't affect other roads. And also made sure a lot more people wanted to safely walk in the middle of the road without having any sort of worries to the world instead of having to squeeze to the past. And I think that shows you how simple things like that can be really effective in there, but also how easy it is to expand it. I think you look at you look at Temple Bar, for example, of how despite the sort of some of the roads there, it's really simple to walk in the middle it's walk on a quiet day to walk in the middle of the road because it's little traffic. And I think that could be something that's expanded. I know that there's a trial done by that uh, just off uh, Glass Street, I think it was, and Jewelry Street, I think it was some of the streets that were temporarily trial for the and they've actually made changes since. 
but I think a lot of people would like a permanent pedestrianisation and I think Cork actually just as of today actually did that and making it and making multiple streets pedestrianised and I think that needs to be a shift too of making streets fully pedestrianised for people yeah. instead of cars because a bigger thing too is that what you actually realise very quickly is that the people opposed to pedestrianisations aren't just people they're actually businesses who li- who are in the local area and what do the businesses own? The car parks. And that's, there was that business being threatened and they vote against it because of that. Despite the fact that, I think that a lot of cases, 80 to 90% of people want to actually walk in the middle of the street without any issues. We truly do live in a yeah. society. It really is a case of we live in a society. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> although I sort of argue that by making a true pedestrian cycle public transport friendly city we can probably have society who too properly and i think another issue that i would also mention is that you also need to have interconnectivity between transport modes so for example if you walk to the train station it should be an easy walk and safe walk but also having frequent trains too or lewis's example and i think that's a bigger thing too that needs to be you need to sort of combine multiple ways and that's yeah a big thing too and that's not really happening i think if i look at my own area for example i think there's a bus that sometimes shows up at exactly the time when the train shows up but that means anyone trying to get from the train to the bus is not going to get the bus and they have to wait another half an hour and i think those are very simple things that should not happen basically it should basically be timed perfectly to actually connect easily and that's something that isn't done a lot either and i think that will yeah. make the city connected too yeah. Except when you're sort of very inconvenienced mm. by Minor, like little things that world, you might not think about. Sort of have to wait in the rain. I think there was one time actually I was coming back. Yeah. There was one time I was coming back from on the train from Hote yeah, to then... going back on the maneuver line. And I saw, I was literally on the dark going into Conley as I saw the train going to, train I was meant to connect on to just leave the station because my own train was late. I'm thinking, why does that happen really? And why can I not rely on that service? To even be frequent enough that I can sort of be okay with missing the train and be like, oh yeah, there's another train in 10 minutes and it'll be fine. But obviously, the issue of service is a bigger thing too. And I think I remember I literally cycled instead of getting the train back because I was just uh, annoyed. And I ended up coming back around the same time anyway. Yeah. I think that's a quite, quite a topical point, especially considering the RTE series that's happening right now where Endekenny cycles like a prick along uh, railway infrastructure oh, that he defunded. Oh, God. Oh, fucking spare me. Mm. Uh, but, uh, like, that like the, you know, if it's this bad in the city centre where we don't, you know, you don't have reliable enough interconnected public transport, think about how bad it is in places like Donegal trying to get down. Like, yeah. There's no at all and, and I, I say Donegal because my roommate is from Donegal and trying to get uh, like he missed the bus to Dublin so he ended up having to get a bus to Belfast to get a bus down to Dublin and like that's that's really not feasible uh, in, in any way shape or form if you're especially if you're in a hurry it's also but, an issue of reliability mm, like, showing, actually even shows up let alone actually showing up at the right time and that's also an issue too, where how can you rely on a service if it doesn't even show up, I think is the, is the biggest yeah. thing. And then obviously the actual issue of service is a bigger thing where you actually have to rely on one bus 
that only comes once a day and if you miss it you can't go at all anywhere unless you have a car and that just shows you how dominated car society is really especially in rural counties where you know if you miss it you just have to do these ridiculous transfers just to get there which might take an uh. it's actually just more than just paint because paint firstly it not, means nothing if you're going to be having to move away from a car that might be parked in the right lane or especially a bigger one I have an issue I have is shared walking cycling lane where there's no separation and the amount of clear collisions you have with people walking on the cycle lane is way too many so the biggest thing to have is a cycle lane firstly that's separated away from the traffic and especially if you have it like as a greenway for example that's the best way yeah. to have completely separated However, if you're going to have it beside the road, try and have a, like some barrier in it. So, for example, it could be like simple things such as planters, or I think that the coastal mobility route, for example, look at the Leary Rat Down, is a wavy thing of a jig. And that is something simple that keeps people separated from cars. And that works and gets a lot of people in because you want, because the best way to see how a bike lane works is to see what kind of people use it, not how many people use it, or what kind, because if you get kids and stuff like that who cycle on the path instead of the cycling, then that's not a good enough cycling, yeah. because obviously there's an issue with it, and that they don't feel safe in it. So that's also having to address that too, in sort of being able to have the best what it can, but I think a lot of it is just trying to compromise, because obviously there's a local cycling that's been put in recently, and it has some people saying, why don't it go to you, why isn't it as good as it could be? But I think in comparison to what it was, I think it's an improvement because there was just a tiny bit of paint, but it was very much faded paint. It wasn't even paint, it was just non-existent. Since then, I felt a lot safer, and I think that's what we need to aim for, at least. Just make it usable, and then we can sort of work on it after. Yeah. Nearly like, like placebo infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a placebo, but it, you mm, can see that it yeah. actually works. So it's not very placebo, yeah. say. <laughs> it's placebo, but it's so little in actual changes that many people don't even notice in case until they actually use it. And they're like, oh my word, yeah, this is a yeah, game changer. And otherwise, I think the only sort of thing I have an extra sort of. I think what was most, what I found most interesting was how much I played the game City Skylines, and especially because I owned the games. SimCity 2000 and then also the SimCity that came out in 2013 once those online issues were <laughs> fixed half half and I think I realised how quickly and how early I actually gained that appreciation for cities and I think that's what surprised me the most that although it's only since lockdown where I started sending a lot of more emails it's actually well beforehand where I started going ooh I wonder how much traffic flow I can get in my virtual city and how much public transport I can get and can I make it free and I think that's what makes it most interesting to actually have that creative outlet to do it in too that you don't need a degree in engineering or architecture or planning to do it I think that anybody can do it really and also that they can destroy the city when they want to <laughs> as well and I think that provides great opportunity to do that too you can have meteorites oh, it's fine. so it provides a lot more creativity and a lot more chaos yeah, there, there, there is a certain joy in, in being like, well, I can just get rid of this if it, if it all goes wrong. And I feel like yeah. you can't really do that in real life unless you're like on the scale of Godzilla or something. <laughs> and also, you can have unlimited budgets, so you don't have to worry about spending and having lots of opposition. You can just Andy. do whatever you want. And if you want to just destroy someone's house, you 
And if you want to just destroy someone's house, you can just do this. Fair. I just, I, I will say for the record, I do not condone destroying Don't do that, people. For no reason, apart from your evil satisfaction. <laughs> it's tempting, <laughs> but don't do it. Please don't destroy houses. This is a message from Hyperfixations. Yeah, the, the, we're, we're the only we're the only podcast brave enough to come out with a take like that. Like, don't they, they um, hated them for they told the truth. Yeah, <laughs> I think that <laughs> <laughs> just the sheer absurdity of being like completely like completely genuinely being like don't destroy cities and then just smile and nod at them like yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's. That's a really way to end this. Just be like, don't destroy us. Just build it. And build please. it well. Just, yeah. Yeah. Like, unless it, unless it's un, unless it's bad, that it has to be really bad. And ideally, you would like to follow the laws. So try and do that. Then. Yeah. Try being operative. Like like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> uh, I know that's not the quote, but that's how everyone misquotes Field of Dreams. What's the actual quote? <laughs> If you build it, he will come. Which, like, it sounds like such a profound, like, inspirational quote. And then when you watch Field of Dreams, it's just actually James Earl Jones telling Kevin Costner to build a baseball stadium so ghosts can play baseball. That's brilliant. It's funny you mentioned that. It's funny you mentioned that quote because with Bankblade, a lot of the Cycle African groups actually use the quote, build it, and they will come. <laughs> so that is really coincidence in that. Yeah. I totally knew that when I brought up my unfounded hatred for Field of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Alright, yeah, uh, Ross, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me in your local DCU Student Union from starting in June as Vice President of Community and Citizenship. So that includes my remit on sustainability and bike lanes. So very much a hyperfixation that <laughs> I actually got to take action on. And then also you can find me on my Twitter at RossBJBoyd. That's usually where you find me. I'm probably taking the next two weeks off social media as of when I'm recording this because I've got a thesis to do but I'll probably be tweeting a lot more that. after that. So go check out my takes. They're usually <laughs> lukewarm. <laughs> Not quite at the level of don't destroy cities. <laughs> no, I have I, I have I have employers watching. Yeah. Nigel, where can we find you? Uh you can find me on Twitter at spicy Nigel where I'm tweeting <laughs> something. Big if true, on uh, Twitter I'm tweeting. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> you can you can find me on Twitter at Alika underscore Ali spelt like alleyway, cat with the cake. And where I am just like Nigel and I'm tweeting. And on Instagram, you can find me at Ali, A-L-L-Y, underscore K, underscore Keegan. And there I just put up pictures when I have them. It's usually selfies, if I'm honest. Ah, vanity. Ah, yes, we love it. And you can find the podcast at HyperfixationsP on Twitter and HyperfixationsPod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be that on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or tattooed all across your body when you wake up after a memorable night in Magaluf. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And that is all for this week. Ross, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Signing. Bye. And signing off. Bye.